This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. I really hope that, you know, together, that in another 20, 30 years from now, I hope you guys do another podcast session. (laughs) And we're able to say that things are different. Hi, I'm Julia Tetro-Provencher. Welcome to The Next 30 Years, episode 4 of our mini-series marking the 30th anniversary of the CBA Touchstones Report affecting actual change on EDI in the legal profession since 1993. Yeah, it's, it's amazing that this work was done in 1993, and I'd almost forgotten about it until it was sent to me again by email and I reviewed it again. It was really ahead of its time uh, in 1993. That was 30 years ago. And, and, it's, and it's heartening to, to remember that such work was being done 30 years ago. What's disheartening is that we're still talking about the same issues. Yeah, I think I want to see more women-led firms like I want that to be the majority because there's oftentimes I feel like women are leading firms when they're fed up being at the firms that they are because of all these, you know, issues when it comes to discrimination, equality, what have you. And it's that frustration that makes us leave and start up on our own. So it'd be nice if we can come together, you know, and create the environment that we wish we had for others. You know. Because that's what I take on. Like, I'm like, I've gone through all these experiences and I want to be able to set up something eventually down the road being like, you know, this is the awful stuff that I've gone through and my friends have gone through and I refuse for anybody to experience that in this environment and, you know, have those type of practices, policies, everything in place to ensure that doesn't come to it. I would hope that in about another 20 to 30 years that firms are don't look the way they do right now, that there is more diversity in the firms. You're seeing cultural diversity, you're seeing gender diversity. Uh, it's not just the, the way you see them now. I would I had hope that they're very different. And uh, I would hope that there is more respect for if you're a junior lawyer, if you're an associate, if you're self-employed. Um, I would hope that uh, even the senior lawyers change their perspectives of the younger lawyers, guide them, you know, uh, rather than judging them. Because I've had friends that have left. They've been yelled at by, you know, their senior lawyers or faced some sort of abusive environments. And, uh, And I would also hope that the articling or the NCA process or of transferring, because I went through that as well. Uh, I studied in the U.S. That there's there's some more connection or guidance, uh, like how we talked about, you know, there's a place to turn to and not be afraid that if you need to report something or you're dealing with something, the resources are clearly available. You have a diverse and equity committee, do something with it. Um, don't just let it sit there. Um, actually take action and, and think about the people in it and actually try and make a change and don't just um, leverage it as a way to get people of different cultural backgrounds to come to your firm. The, the two programs, ED&I and Reconciliation, are um, 
mutually exclusive programs that uh, have different goals and are both needed because uh, reconciliation um, is meant as an undertaking for all Canadians to address and move past uh, a genocide, a historical as well as you know ongoing lasting effects of genocide in order for uh, Canada to you know, live up to the promise of being a, a safe and uh, welcoming in country for uh, all, all of its people, um, it needs to address uh, and reconcile with the first people, with the people that, you know, um, were dispossessed of their lands, were dispossessed of their children, were over-criminalized, and so I think uh, that issue is, is really important as we move forward. Um, EDNI, I think, is a, is a separate issue where it's really important that in those programs, um, differing uh, views and perspectives are included in discussions, are valued, because, you know, study after study will tell you, you know, the more inclusive a organization is and the more uh, perspectives uh, that are considered, uh, the better the organization operates, the better product that they produce. There's still a, and I think this this is not cultural specific. I think that there's a, um, a generational thing as well. Uh-huh. I think, you know, when I think about the leadership, you know, in various boardrooms that I'm involved in, I usually have to assess, okay, who who am I dealing with? Is it my generation or is it the previous generation that's still in leadership, right? Why do we not try to help folks? We see a lot of international lawyers coming here and, and, and they say that, right? It's, you know, they want to, it's not that they don't want to reach this target that's set for them at, at their firms. But they have so many other responsibilities. They may be supporting people back home. They may have to have a second job. They may have to have all of these other duties, you know, taking a citizenship test, um, you know, re-educating themselves to even uh, uh, do the things that they can do here. Learning a new language, all of these things, you know, and for women too, it's all these other responsibilities you have at home, right? Nobody thinks about the mental capacity that it takes to like even schedule life right? Like the amount of work to, you know, just not, you know, take your kids to these events, to these activities, to, you know, what's for dinner, what's all of that stuff. And we forget to think that we're humans outside of that firm life. And I worked with so many lawyers who, you know, they they had a stay-at-home wife and they were, you know, male, white male lawyers who could just go to work, work for as many hours as they need to and go home and everything was taken care of. It's so different now, right? So I, I just, you know, this idea of equality for me, it, it really means nothing if there's no equity behind that. And I, I feel like that's where we really, you know, need to put our focus on. I know on, you know, even people putting EDI policy, it's like, we're trying to be equitable, but like, I, but are you, right? Are you really helping those that really need that help so that they at least start at the same point as everybody else. This is such an important question. How do we get rid of 
the actual barriers. You know, we're asked this question every day when we do legal recruitment. It used to be, it used to be that clients used to say to me, um, confidentially, of course, um, okay, Samira, and when you're doing uh, recruitment, we don't actually want a woman because she's going to go on mat leave. She's just going to get pregnant and go on mat leave. It was this very quiet kind of hush-hush. We don't actually want a woman in her childbearing years because she's going to go on mat leave and we're going to have to deal with that. So that was, you know, that was 20, 15, 20 years ago. Now um, we're being asked to ensure we do have a diverse pool. We're being specifically asked to ensure that the pool that we present to our clients um, is diverse. Not just gender, uh, you know, diversity, but but racialized diversity. Um, but my question is always why? Is it just for optics? What work is your company actually doing um, to ensure that those diverse voices are going to succeed? So if you do hire um, a woman for the top job or a racialized woman or racialized person, um, I, I want to make sure that those diverse voices are going to succeed in, in that workplace. So, but to your, to your point about, about barriers, what's, what's interesting about doing recruitment and ensuring a diverse pool, and this actually happened um, with respect to the, the board that, um, and the, the nonprofit organization that, uh, that I started called Women in Law Leadership. Uh, you know, the realization um, as we were awarding women with, um, you know, some of these amazing and celebrating their achievements in, in law and awarding the Lifetime Achievement Award, we realized that kind of at the five-year mark that most of the winners were um, non-racialized women. And so similarly, um, you know, we, we would do the work in terms of ensuring that, trying to ensure that we would have a diverse pool. But at the end of the day, um, if the only people that apply or are being put forward are not women or are not um, racialized women, then you have to ask yourself the question, do they just not exist? Which is ridiculous, right? Of course they exist. Of course they exist. Is there a, is there a barrier to applying? Is there a barrier to being put forward? And how do we address that barrier? How do we break that barrier down so that we can ensure that um, women and racialized women have the, the confidence or the access to actually come to the table and be a part of that pool? And so that's the work that that I you know do in my day job is to ensure that we have a diverse pool and to be able to say to my clients, we have actually um, reached out into all of these different spaces and areas and broken these barriers down and identified women and racialized women to come to the table who may not have even known about the role or have not um, had the confidence to, to put their names forward for whatever reason. And we've identified those women and we're bringing them to the table. So it's not enough to say, yeah, we did a good search and really here's a pool of, of, only, um, of only men. Um, because then what we're saying is the women don't exist and that's not true.
But the fact that we now have more women partners, more women general counsel, more women judges um, in all these areas, more women benchers is as role models. And role models play a huge role in any group trying to achieve equity. And that's why it's important that we also promote, um, you know, indigenous lawyers and lawyers from different cultural backgrounds. Those numbers are still, you know, much lower than Mm -hmm. it is they should be. But those role models and mentoring, that is one of the reasons that um, more women are moving into those positions. And that's a huge improvement. Yeah. When you see people that are doing that, that look like you, you're more inclined to say, hey, I can do it yourself. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I want to see women own the fact that they're good. Yeah. 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 Mm. Because right now, I think that a lot of us have reservations when it comes to uh, negotiating salaries or promotions, when it comes to asking for what you want, when it comes to even the kind of work that you do when you're in the law firm. Um, You've probably heard it that, you know, women tend to do the pink files to get the pink files. No, what is that? The pink files are the files that uh, don't really uh, pay um, and don't actually don't usually aren't usually taken into account when the firm is determining whether they should make you a partner or not so for example organizing events you know committees and things like that and so when it comes to those activities any kind of admin um role within the firm we'll give that to a woman but when it comes to things that will lead to um you know um maybe acquisition of clients or Know, like you getting a file, but they tend to give that to men, whether they do it on purpose or unconsciously. That's another that's another debate, but that's what tends to happen. And so, by the time the woman and the man come up for partnership, the man would have more to show than the woman because you know she didn't bring money to the firm, and whatever it is that she did um, isn't really recognized as something that adds value. So I want to see women, you know, and I had I attended an event this this week, which was really interesting. And women were talking about that. I think it was in in Ottawa. I I happened to be in Ottawa and I dropped into um, uh, a program by the Young Lawyers Division um, in law. And they were all given their giving their take on what women should do. And I think the consensus the consensus was you don't have to refuse to do the to take the pink files <laughs> you have to be strategic mm-hmm. about it is it going to get you to where you want to go yeah don't just take them because they give it to you or just for the sake of you know like not wanting to disappoint people because in the end you'll pay for it you know um so just be very strategic about every single decision that you make at the firm and if you do see that you're not going anywhere or that you're in a firm where people are not valuing your input, don't stay, you know, <laughs> like there's, there's something else. So I do want to see us be a little more, a little tougher. Um, you know, research has shown that women tend to not negotiate salaries when they're being hired as opposed to men. Um, and they only apply for, for jobs when they feel that they meet 100% 
of the qualifications. Whereas men, they'll apply even if they meet 60 or 50. Uh, 60 make it 80. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I've always been impressed with that. <laughs> like, it requires 10 years experience. It's like two years experience and then I will apply. I will apply. I'm like, what? <laughs> I would have never done that. But I think, you know, it's good also. <laughs> but I agree with you. Yeah, women. Yeah, so I think somehow we need to... It's not about being men. It's not about no, no. like men at all. That's not the no, It's no. about realizing our worth. You know? Yes, exactly. Start yeah. working on that so that we have the courage to ask for what we deserve and to leave when we feel that we're not going to get it or you know we're not close to getting it. So in 30 years, I want to see us more confident. I don't think that we'll ever get rid of uh, imposter syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> But you know what? I think it's good too because I don't, and I think it's important what you said. It's not we're not aiming at being men to the opposite actually we just want to be this this version that is more confident and that and you know the imposter syndrome can be good sometimes because it's also that's why we work so hard and that's why we're i think we're so good at what we do mm -hmm. also and and so bad me i mean it's also bad but i mean you understand what, what i yeah yeah i get it <laughs> but yeah anyway we'll yeah. never get rid of it <laughs> yeah, so i think that once we start seeing other women doing it publicly yeah then that will inspire us to do the same thing. Because right now we just feel like we're a minority. We're the only ones asking for a salary increase. And, you know, once they start getting used to women, all women. <laughs> so I've had conversations with friends who also grew up on reserve and who are now in Toronto. And the consensus seems to be that obviously we want to help out our communities um, and we do work with our communities. We, um, you know, we like to give back even if it's just doing pro bono work, a lot of us. Um, but what happens, I think, when you move to the larger city is that it's not your community that's putting the pressure on you. It's the bar. And I'm not talking about the Indigenous bar. I'm talking specifically about the bar in general. So I'll give you an example. Um, I went to a Law Society event uh, a couple of weeks ago. And the conversation there was about a successful Indigenous lawyer. She's succeeding. Um, and not that salary means anything, but she's probably going to make a very good salary this year because she won a, a great number of successful cases. Excellent lawyer, great civil litigator. The conversation surrounded the fact, um, and this is the conversation that I overheard. And again, the conversation was well, isn't that a shame? She should be giving back to her community. And what I get from that is, first of all, as a woman, she succeeded above and beyond what was, you know, you talk, we talk about the Touchstones report um, and she grew up during that time. And so she succeeded where her colleagues, you know, were not at the same, were not, she was not provided the same opportunities as her colleagues. And now she's successful and there's stigma to her success. And that is now a new hurdle that Indigenous, specifically Indigenous lawyers have to overcome because it's always asked, why are you not giving back to your community? And to be fair, we could be giving back, but we don't do it publicly or maybe in this person in particular um, does not. But the fact that it's even a subject of conversation means that there's still a long way to go because you wouldn't hear that. For example, if it was, you know, let's let's just say like a, a, a white presenting male lawyer uh, in Toronto, if he decided to, you know, he 
succeeded at a lit- litigation case, you'd never hear, oh, it's such a shame that he is not contributing back, you know, to the Toronto public in general. And so from that perspective, I think we still have a long way to go. And it's, there's too much pressure on us. And then if we advocate, if we advocate properly, we're not in their um, good books. So we're, we're, we're a pain. They don't want to listen to us. So they ignore us. They turn their heads. They're passive aggressive towards us. Or they, there's some uh, unconscious bias going on, right? So they're not really, sometimes they're not really being aware that they're doing that to us, but it's happening. So that's why uh, unconscious bias training is really important. And it has to be ongoing. Like it can't just be a one and done deal. The world is getting more complex and, and the leaders are, do not have the requisite tools to um, fix things anymore. It takes a diverse population. We have the answers and we have the different skills and tools needed to uh, fix things. And that doesn't mean hiring a woman or an Indigenous woman like myself uh, at the end game. So when things get really fraught, when there's like emergency things happening, it's called the glass cliff, right? So they hired me right at the last moment on the glass cliff. Oh, and why didn't Andrea last very long? Well, you hired her right at the end. Or yeah, or help us, help us, help us, help us. We're, you know, falling and failing. And then, so what we usually uh, have happened to us is we usually get blamed. Oh, okay, you know, Andrea, now she's, you know, she's the one getting blamed and off she goes. And then there, my career is ruined. Uh, and then, you know, all their credibility is ruined. Uh, what happened to Andrea? She was a flash in the pan and away she goes. So this has to stop. Like there has to be, you can't be hiring us at the last minute for emergency sakes and have us teetering on the glass cliff where you can easily push us off. Yes, they hired to a certain extent based on that. But once you got to the firm, it wasn't even a level playing field because I think from a diverse background, and this is kind of a I, 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 little bit going off topic, but um, I come from a non-white collared family. Like none of my family members um, are professionals. None of them went to grad school. And so I was the only one. So I didn't even know what big law was until I got into law school. So it was not on my radar. Um, whereas we had my peers who have known about this, who've known about this their entire lives and they have those networks and they have family members who are in law and in the legal profession. And so they kind of were already one step ahead of us. But instead of helping those of us who weren't on that field, they weren't kind of promoting us. They were just, it was kind of like we were being held back. And it's like, yeah, you're here, but either you need to figure it out on your own or we're just, you know, just kind of like threw you out there and, and didn't really care to help you network. But the people with networks, they were kind of, whether it was for business or otherwise, they were helping them even more. So it's kind of like they moved forward and you just kind of regress because there's no medium ground. And it's just, and I found that really difficult. And I, I and I definitely think it was, um, I don't know if it was necessarily a man and versus woman. And, you know, it was, it was that, I think in general, it was one being of color. That was a huge difference for me. Um, and being a woman of color made it that much more difficult. One of the things I, I wanted to explore, and I'm not sure if others have talked about it. Um, and it's, it, it really goes to, you know, um, when, when will we achieve gender um, equality or, um, you know, when will the profession get to a place where we can look back and say, we got there. 
And I think there's certain realities that that women face um, that men don't face. They're biological realities. Women who choose to have um, biological children uh, have a reality that we face, and and all women. And I and I can now share this because I'm going through it myself. And I wouldn't have been able to share it 10 years ago because I didn't understand it, is that women also face menopause later in their careers. And at a time in in their careers where, you know, at 50, you finally reach the top of your game. You finally gotten to and have um, developed all of this credibility and knowledge and experience and have reached the top of your game where now we should be able to kind of lead and and um and kind of move forward and then menopause hits (laughs) and it's it's another it's another biological reality that i if you again asked me these questions 10 or 15 years ago i wouldn't have been able to articulate them because i wouldn't have understood it but i'm going through it now and so we've got a the women who choose to have biological children have a have a biological reality um, when they choose to do that, and then all women, um, I think most anyway, face menopause um, when they hit a certain age. So we have these biological realities, which unless these biological realities are addressed by the profession, but by society generally, um, you know. And until and unless these realities are addressed and then um, discussed and then incorporated into these um, these plans of inclusion, we are we aren't going to be able to move forward. That that's one of the things that I've really realized most recently as I'm going through menopause myself. Um, and I guess the second thing that I want to leave you with. Um, because I see one of the, the questions about this very open-ended question about where we want to see the profession in 30 years. Where do I want to see society in 30 years? Really, that's the bigger question. And I remember when I started Women in Law Leadership, and I was reaching out to women for support. And and I remember one woman saying to me, "I don't want to win an award, a women's award. I want to win an award." not a women's only award. And so I don't believe in this. I don't believe in this cause because I don't believe in separating out um, these, what, what she called special interest groups. And I, and I think that that um, really gave me pause at the time and continues to, because when you look at the legal profession and beyond, there are many um, equity-deserving groups that have been created in order to address issues of inequality, including women's groups like ours, Women in Law Leadership. And so maybe it would be nice one day to not have to have those. Yeah, and then maybe, you know, I'm talking as a Black person, but I'd like to open it up to other people as well that feel that they're underrepresented, you know, so that they could also have 
they can also see themselves in the justice system at every level. Um, you know, whether, you know, regardless of where you're from, like you should be able to see people out there because there are brilliant people practicing. But I, you know, that being said, I, I have to applaud all the recent efforts that are that have been made to appoint diverse judges, um, you know, to appoint people in, in positions of power in this country, whether it's the the recently elected um, um, Speaker of the House of Commons or the Attorney General, Arif Yurani, or, you know, like people there, I believe there's um, a judge who was uh, recently named to the Court of King's bench in Alberta, um, and she's of um, Nigerian ancestry. So that those are things that are good to see. You know, like we see that we're moving in the right direction because we are in a multicultural country. We should be able to see that in action too. Yeah, no, I agree. And me too, I'm happy to see that. But I'm like, I think in 30 years, I would like not to be happy to see that and be just like normal, you know, it's happening. This is yeah, it. You, yeah, you know, it's... Right, yeah, <laughs> you don't have an eyelid. Yeah, it's just like, you know, you go to school and you see all these different people. You don't think about it because it's just the way that it is. Yeah, and in terms of women specifically, I want to be able to, I want to see women being able to fully participate in the the legal workspace without feeling like somehow they're you know they need to change who they are or they need to sacrifice things that they want to achieve whether it's motherhood or being um, raising a family and things like that um, and I shouldn't just say motherhood parenthood in general Um, so I want to be, I want to see that I want, because right now I've heard stories that are really atrocious. Um, for example, of women who take mat leave and, you know, when they come back, their files have been given out to other people. They have to almost start from scratch and it took them years to build their practice. They have to rebuild it again. They miss out on partnership opportunities and things like that. So, you know, I think that something needs to be done at that level because, a woman should not have to choose between her career and being, you know, um, a parent or raising a family. It can all be done. And we have many fine examples of women that have achieved that, but it does take a supportive work environment to make that happen, you know, and the ones that did achieve it, whether, you know, some of them had to really struggle through, but others had the support of their firm. And so that would be nice to see. I mean, I've been with you for an hour and I feel so empowered. That was the very empowering Angela Ogang. And before that, we heard from Samira, Manroop, Andrea, Amanda, Vasu, Christina, Prab, and Gurpreet, who will all be familiar to listeners of episode 3 on intersectionality. We have also added Victoria Fred and Linda K. Robertson to our forest of diverse women lawyers for this episode and this series. We are very keen to keep the conversation going and we'll be releasing some of the complete interviews and doing new ones in the new year. We come now to the final segment of our Fireside Chats with Touchstone's report author, Melina Buckley, and original task force members, Sophie Bourque, Daphne Dumont, and Patricia Bloxham. Then I'd like to know, like, what do you see in 30 years now? Uh, so it's been 30 years. In 30 years, what would you like 
the legal profession to be or maybe you, you can dream or you can be more realistic how do you see it um i'd like to hear your thoughts on that because i don't think we'll have another task force but i think we can still go on with this uh, um, report and still try to to deal with that so yeah that would be my last question but then if it was that question go ahead <laughs> well well i can jump in let me jump in with uh with what um i hope will be what my hope for the next 30 years my hope for the next 30 years is that our profession um remains committed to being inclusive to recognizing that Canadian society is diverse and that we owe it to Canadian society to reflect that diversity within our profession at every level of our profession. Uh, and I think that that comes with challenges because today we live in a society where uh, we kind of have factions, right? We have factions that would, would use terms like that's way too, I, I hear people saying this and I want to pull my hair out you know, this is too woke for me. When they talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, they talk about wokeness. They talk about why are we doing this? And so I think there are some challenges that face us. Right? And I think that we need to be um, committed to having this process and these dialogues continue and to saying that this will not this will not happen unless people keep it on the radar and say that it has to be an important topic for the Canadian Bar Association and for our profession at every level, um, or we could backslide on this. And we don't need to look very far to think about what it, what backsliding looks like. All we need to do is look south of our border and say that that can't be Canadian society. We can't go there. Or even look internationally and think about what's happening interna internationally. So, you know, I think it still remains challenge. I think we've made progress. We have, we have, a forest, but we need to protect that forest and we need to make sure that it uh, remains secure from people who might wish to uh, to start taking a chainsaw to it. Okay, I've had a thought. That was a challenging question about 30 years from now. I'm 70 now, so my mother's 100, so I may be here for this. Um, my first thought was, I think as we look forward and try to see what it might be like for a profession still active in the year, whatever that is, what is 20, so 50 something, 2050 something. Uh, I would say we still have a long, long way to go. And I want to see this happen in my lifetime. We need what I would call much deeper accommodation. Um, the law firm that I'm now with, Cox and Palmer, which is an Atlantic law firm, is quite large over the whole Atlantic region with many offices. And they just had a retreat, the first retreat they've had in uh, four years. And I only joined the firm three years ago. So um, I was admit I was at the retreat and they, they still had uh, a meeting of all the women lawyers, which was 40 or 50 of them, uh, several managing partners. It was really positive, but the same issues were coming up that we, we focused on, which is how do you really achieve work-life balance? How do you support uh, a family having three or four children or however many they want? Um, and the female lawyers in the family still having uh, a good chance to stay in practice, return to practice without too much impairment 
not feel if they wish to be in private practice that they they have to find a job in in house as a lawyer in a corporation or not feel that the government is a better place for them not not to be on i think they identified this in the um in the in the task forces that essentially the the private firms are providing uh training and money and articling opportunities and setting up a conveyor belt to move a lot of these wonderful keen young women lawyers and women of different diverse backgrounds through into the government <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with the government and it needs brilliant uh women as well but but there were people moving not for the fact that they just wish to be perhaps in research or in the military or whatever uh, but what i mean is that to this day the women are still sitting around saying well how can i balance being a mother and, and and a lawyer and how can i will they still give me my partnership share if i'm out for two years with the new twins or whatever it is and and we i don't sense that coming from my male colleagues as much i don't know what others experience but we haven't found the right analogy i think we need new analogies or something for what would really be fair you know uh what would the, what do our colleagues in the profession who don't have families such as myself what do we have to commit to do in 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 respect to our own income our own security our own finances our own earnings so that the people who are having the children that we all need to exist you know in this world if i didn't have any so somebody's i remember saying to melina one of her through three beautiful daughters was going to have to be my <laughs> ballerina and my you know run my funeral home and look after the, you know just whatever because someone who took the trouble to have children are producing the children that assist us uh who didn't have them and who had a better run in that case so that's what i deeply want to see before i pass away is that that someone who wishes to be in private practice and have children can move up maybe the ladder looks a bit different but they won't still be sitting around saying what i've described as having been said recently which we all know is still having to be said and I, it's hard to find the answer to that but it's a fundamental adjustment that that society in general needs not just our profession mhm mm Do you want to go uh, Yeah, maybe because I I'm going to continue on what uh Daphne is saying um about what we would like to see 30 years from now. Um and what I would what I would like to see is a better implication of the profession in the in social justice. You know, inequality and equality issues are fundamentally issues of justice. and are fundamentally issues that are concern of all the society the situation of women lawyers is directly linked to the situation of women in the society we were not change as a profession as much as we want the profession to change when the society will not follow and um and i, I think that of course when we're trying to improve the situation within the legal profession uh we are showing a way and we are very privileged as people of the legal profession who are privileged every time i kind of i kind of feel that i have a bad day uh for whatever reason i just reposition myself on this planet and i say oh my god i'm a woman i'm now a judge i've been a criminal defense lawyer all of my practice 
I am so, so, so privileged what I am complaining about. Uh, but I think that um, we, I don't feel that we outreach enough. I don't feel that uh, women lawyers are, uh, that we, that we think a lot in terms of how can what we want for the profession can also help the society as a whole, a solution that will be, that can be useful for us, but that can also be useful for other members of society. You know, when we are like solo firms or small law firms, a lot of women are in small working environment facing the same issues. Uh, so that will be my, uh, my wish for uh, or what I would like us to go. I think that we're going to be probably we're going to make bigger ch changes if we if we do it together and not only not only within our profession. And I hope that uh, all of us we're going to create a new conference at the CBA, the very old conference lawyers. Very old lawyers conference. <laughs> <laughs> Sophie, you will never be old. I don't think any of us will be old because we're so, you know, you become old when you give up learning, when you stop learning. So anyway, that's my, my. so yes, again, I agree with um, everything that's been said. And I think, so I used the analogy before that we, with this report, we took things to the edge. I now wish we'd gone over the edge <laughs> a little bit more. So I think there, and I don't know why we have to give up on the idea of another task force for the CBA. And maybe it's not a priority, but, and it would look quite different, but it would be interesting actually to imagine what we would need now if we were going to have a task force on these issues and how we would approach it just as a thought experiment. I'm thinking about that now, but um, so I would say going over the edge and really building on the transformative aspects of the report. So a, a lot of the report was um, was like looking forward, but not with a view to transformation. So sort of more about doing things better, being more inclusive within the box of the way the legal profession works or the various sectors of the legal profession work some of the recommendations were like, no, actually, we have to rethink the box. We have to rethink the structure of the practice of law. And of course, the CBA has also done that through its studies on the future of the practice of law. And so it ties in also to that, to some of the challenges or, or some of the opportunities and challenges of the way the practice of law is changing altogether. And unfortunately, much of that is more towards the business side of law and there's less and less of the social justice side of law um, that Sophie was talking about. I'm not talking about within the CBA. I'm just talking about generally sort of as a, you know, I've always been a public interest lawyer. All, all four of us have done a lot of public interest work in one way or, or another, where we see that as part of our professional responsibility to either be doing work pro bono or to be directly involved with projects or initiatives that try to improve the justice system here or abroad or improve the way law the way the law works improve the way the Quebec Cour supérieure criminal bench works you know like we're we're there we're like 
let's make it better. Let's make it better both for our lawyers, for, but more importantly for society in general and for the next generation. And I think that's something that as we get older, that kind of inter intergenerational, what kind of legacy we're leaving, which we're, of course, learning a lot um, from First Nations people in Canada, that um, idea which is like um, completely natural to them, but is the antithesis of capitalism. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it, it's hard for that to take traction, but it is like I have, that's one of the things that makes me mo the most optimistic is what I see for the first time as real movement towards reconciliation in Canada. And I feel like if we take that opportunity as an op opportunity uh, to really learn that and, and learn about the idea of uh, intergenerational responsibility, or our roles as ancestors um, is something that that we can take both to that specific conversation, but but to everything, including something as um, specific as women in the legal profession. So that's what I would like to see. I would like to see, and maybe it's not a report. You know, maybe we're past the report. This is a podcast, not a report, right? So maybe you know, I'm a writer, so. And that's the way I choose to do things. But, you know, I think women lawyers will never be equal when they still don't aren't safe in the world. And none of us are, right? Like, I have just finished a big report that involves violence, um, and mass violence. And that's like, that hit home to me in the same way that it did in 1989 with the massacre at Ecole Polytechnique, you know, which was like, just just before this task force got started. And we're always just a little bit away when we look south, the way Pat was saying, we see that even more in so many ways that are so scary. And so it's not just, you know, we have to at a minimum be vigilant to try to make sure we don't lose whatever progress we've made. But I think we, we ensure or we give power to that vigilance by going further. By going further in, in a good way that brings brings people along with us. So like it's like the vanguard, but maybe through really a lot of discussion around these topics, um, like this podcast, right, <laughs> uh, or or other initiatives that the CBA might want to consider, or that any of us might want. I know Daphne does a lot. I mean, a lot of you do a lot of public speaking too, and other forms of engagement that are super important in terms of actually achieving change. Sorry, that was like a meander from nowhere, but there you go. <laughs> any, any, any Melina meander is valuable. Brilliant. And, and Brilliant. It, you meandered into my brain a little bit there because one of the things that also struck me when um, uh, Julia asked about um, our future in 30 years is there has to be an improvement in the inequity in practice and in government service or whatever between what a lawyer gets paid and what their paralegal gets paid like i've always thought well really if the firm does well why why do they stay at fifty-four thousand and 16 partners get an extra fifty thousand and some associates get good like we're not even yet fair to to let's be honest in order to be a paralegal to a lawyer or to affirm, you have to be very smart, very dedicated, very patient. You know, these are and very accurate. These are highly intelligent people that 
provide us with their supporting services, even title searches. I mean, they're just, they don't, they make a mistake. We're in trouble, you know, and we just sort of think, oh, well, we're sort of in the range. We'll just leave it that way. And when I was in my little firm with the two or three of us, I was always fighting this with my partner and saying, no, no, that's not fair. If we had this year, then they should have, you know, so I, I, I think that's something that we're kind of a little blind to our own internal inequities. Um, and I don't think we pay quite as much attention to our immediate supporters as we sometimes pay to uh, the same situation in the broader society. Also, Thank you. National child care. <laughs> I mean, there's so many things talk about, you know, the, the things that we mentioned in the report. Yeah. You know, that are so obvious, you know, um, where where it's again that what Sophie was talking about that, you know, it's not just changing the profession, it's um Canadian making sure women have an equal opportunity and and equal support um to actually participate fully in the economy should they um choose to do so or should they need to do so. It is a huge privilege for me, and I really mean that sincerely that the CBA and the the profession is still interested 30 years. There are not many people who write the equivalent of a Royal Commission report and find it still being picked up and read and, and worked on. And your work, the work of, of, of everyone, Rebecca, everyone, you know, to keep it front and center and keep looking for the deep analogies and keep looking for the, keep going over the edge it it just it, you can't imagine how much it means to us that that this there are words in there that are still helping um and i'll end with one little tiny thing i remembered about connie sparks was that when she came to us she was the first woman judge uh black woman judge in nova scotia and she got some really nasty attacks from people saying that she was biased or because she was black she couldn't decide a case of a white uh litigant or or defendant and and she was very beaten down by that. And then at some point in the task force, I'm not sure when, someone invited her or she chose to go to the American Association of Black Female Judges. And she came back from that just, she said, I never thought I would stand in a room with 320 Black female judges. And it just inspired her. Do you remember that? And she the energy she had from that was amazing. And that taught me something And I, that that as, as a white lawyer um, and a straight white lawyer, you know, I never really had to feel that. I never felt out of place. And and uh, just watching her, even in the years she was with us, go from being the first alone attacked to very much more confident um, was was something I've always remembered. And uh, have, you have you ever had a look at the, the McKinsey, McKinsey report on uh, equality in the workplace? It was last year where it uh, it's the McKinsey firm, this small firm that seems to be around. Uh, they made a report on the 500 biggest company and about equality issues. Not And, and of course, again, uh, race was the worst factor. And what they, what they say is that at entry level, men and women, there's no distinction. It's 50-50. But at the first promotion, you have more men promoted. And the higher you get at the at the last promotion, it's 75% men. And those are actual numbers. So when you're wondering why women lawyers are leaving law firms earlier than men, because it's still the case, 
Well, probably maybe one of the reasons is that they are losing their base of clientele in companies because there's less and less women that get promoted. So it's uh, so you have you lose your contact, you lose your uh, your reference, your world of reference of clientele. So and this is you know you have this ladder that the higher you go, the more discriminate you are against. Which is kind of sad because you you always hope that the higher you go, the better your situation is going to be. Wrong <laughs> answer. <laughs> it might be fascinating to look at across the board of the different independent professions, which have less of the uh, control that large formal corporations, governments have, because in the more formal areas in the government, my standard joke is that voluntary measures can be compulsory, <laughs> you know, whereas in the private practices, it's, whether it's accountancy, I think, or or actuarial work, or presumably medicine, architecture, et cetera, where the, the, the members of the private firms have to pretty well struggle on their own, um, you know, that they that's where you particularly find those those tendencies to to transfer to places where there are more guarantees and, and, and perhaps rightly. Um, so, you know, wouldn't that be interesting is to take all the professions and look look across. It's not, but there's also a layer of patriarchy, right? And then there are structural forces like systemic racism and patriarchy or misogyny that have a compounding effect. So because, you know, social psychological studies show you're more likely to share with someone who's like you who you identify with. Confirmation right? bias. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's like, it takes really active measures um, uh, to overcome that. And it takes actually really challenging some of those um, structures, which is the transformative part that we were all talking about. Yeah, that we just kind of dance around because it's hard. It's hard and it doesn't happen in one step. So it's like it's some multi-layer levels of action because it's attitude and institutional practices and structure of the economy and uh, behaviors. It's like every level of society, of, of human interaction and societal interaction. Yeah, there's a there are really good models about that um, illustrate that. And I do wish if we were doing another report, we would have a lot more graphics. Thank you so much for letting me uh, interview all those women. I have been very inspired. And there's this saying um, that I really like, which is, which goes like that in French, is uh, quand les toiles d'araignées s'unissent, elles peuvent entraver un lion. Um, in English, I guess it would goes like, um, when spiders web united, they can't stop a lion. Um, I'm not sure it's perfect. For me, uh, this says it all. So uh, in 30 years, I hope our web will be so huge that it will stop an entire group of lions. Thank you so much for listening to The Every Lawyer. Please get in touch with us anytime at podcasts at cba.org. A great big 
thank you to all the women who shared their thoughts and experiences with us for this mini-series. And especially to Rebecca Brown and Kamaljit Lihal for doing some of the interviews. We now leave you with these words of wisdom from former BC and National WLF Chair Catherine Sainte in conversation with Kamaljit. Any other words of wisdom for women, women in law, people in law, law, <laughs> profession? Yeah. I think we need to be nicer to each other. And that's one of the reasons I like the mediation, because even when the lawyers go down on each other, it's like, we're here to mediate, guys, not yeah. to yell at each other. Yeah. This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. 